thank you for joining us tonight. Um, this is a uh, journal club for uh, pediatric orthopedic trauma. Um, the moderators are myself. Uh, I'm Keith Baldwin um, from uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We have uh, Ryan Kohler from Omaha, Nebraska, uh, and Grant Hogue from um, Boston Children's. Um, our guest lecturers uh, and authors um, are uh, Alexander Arcader from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, John Chenneker uh, from Vanderbilt, and Ben Shore from Boston Children's. So um, uh, thank you for, uh, for your attention. Um, I am I'm here with uh, Dr. Alexander Arcader. Uh, he is a uh, very well-known uh, trauma and tumor pediatric surgeon. Uh, he's well-known both uh, nationally and internationally in both these areas. Um, and um, he is author of uh, a multi-center paper uh, called Management of Pediatric Type 1 Open Fractures in the Emergency Department or Operating Room, um, a multi-center perspective. Um, it was published in the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics in August of 2019, um, and Dr. Arcader is here to tell us about um, that paper today. Um, so uh, so I, I had some questions about the paper just in terms of like, it's a very interesting paper. I mean, um, open fractures, you know, uh, in the past were like extremely, um, you know, bad actors, like, you know, they resulted in gangrene and, and amputation and stuff like that. Um, and now... Um, you know, they, they seem to be a lot less, uh, less, like, I guess, bad would, would be the, the word for it. And, and um, I just wanted your take, having written this article in, in terms of pediatrics, like, why is that the case? Yeah, I, you know, I think that our understanding for um, open fractures has evolved quite a bit. Um, you know, when I, uh, when I started this paper, I was still practicing at, um, at Children's uh, LA, uh, USC. And as you, you guys are aware, USC, um, uh, Dr. Patsakis was uh, uh, one of the, the main guys that did this push um, in regards to studying open fractures. And um, is that we learned a lot that how important it is uh, antibiotics and maybe how washing out and timing, it's secondary to that. So there's a lot of uh, things that, that evolved um, over time in relationship to open fractures. The other thing, direct to, you, to your question, Keith, is that I, I don't think that's just saying a great one open fracture tells the whole story, right? So I think that the, there are open fractures in different situations with different intensities uh, with different in different bones, and those need to be seen separately. We just tend to group everything as an open fracture and treat it in a similar way, and, and that it's probably the service to to the patients. Yeah, yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. And like you know, it, it's definitely come a long way since um, since Friedrich's original paper in the 1800s about uh, you, you know open fractures and the six hour rule. Um, so when you guys you guys went to went to do this, there was clearly like sort of this um, I mean this like um, dichotomy in, in in terms of how people thought about these. Like you had you you know there was there are some people still to this day where um, every open fracture goes to the operating room for a debridement. Uh, most of them get fixed. Uh, and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of like the dogma that we all still kind of ascribe to. But then there's, a, there's this more current, I think, uh, maybe West Coast thinking that's more like, they, you know, they, maybe they don't all need to go to, to the operating room. Um, and so you guys had four centers. Like, wh what would you say, like, the four centers, like, in terms of their like what were the four centers and what were you, what, what's like the philosophy, like, would you say in terms yeah, of, like, I mean, you know, uh, for full disclosure, Keith's in my office is 10 foot apart. So our practice now it's very similar, but uh, the, the first half of my career was in the West coast. And, you know, I, I can't say that there wasn't a little bit of um, bias uh, in, in deciding to do this paper. Uh, because our feeling was that, you know, you, you look at West Coast, a lot of the, the middle of the country, people are successfully treating um, grade one open fractures without surgery. And you get the traditional um, East Coast institutions and God forbid you don't um, take a, a grade one uh, fracture to, to, to the hospital. So I think it was, was kind of a family and friends um, appeal to this. Uh, a lot of the co-authors were, were former fellows or colleagues that 
Um, we discussed in meetings about the subject and they felt in a similar way. And we figured um, to build upon the two original, there are two original articles on, on kids, greater unopened fracture, upper extremity that were very positive uh, results, but with very small numbers and were single institution. Uh, so our idea was, okay, let's get, you know, more institutions open the geography, right? The area in the map that we're including and see what we we find um and that's and that's and that's what we did uh knowing that it's still not the perfect study because it was retrospective but also aware of the ongoing perspective similar study uh that was uh being done by the university of chicago yeah and i think one of the one of the interesting things that i that i found with the paper is that you know um you know, just in terms of our own practice, like you said, we tend to like wash out all these and, you know, thinking about it, um, although the, the, in this paper, it had a two point, a 2% infection rate in the non-operative group, that was because of like one patient, you know, and there were none in the operative group, but I mean, it's like, it's almost seems like the event rate is super low. So it's kind of like, you know, what, it, you know, what is your, what is your number needed to treat and how do you sort out, like, how did you guys, um, I mean, you know, it sounds quite logical, right? Like that you'd need more patients, uh, but how did you guys like sort of figure that out? Like, what did you guys think would be like, kind of like an optimal number of patients to have? Like, I mean, obviously more is better, but you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms uh, of what would be a valuable, like, you know, like, what would you, what would somebody care about? Like, it was like a 0.6 versus 0.5, like if you had a thousand patients, like, yeah, every time we bring this uh, conversation in our pediatric meeting, there's somebody that will uh, stand up and say, well, I had this open fracture, it was a great one, and had gangrene and lost the arm and patient died or whatever it was. So obviously, you know, one bad result is 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 too many. Um, I'm no statistician. You are. You tell me what the end to treat is. But I think that more important than, than the number, um, it's understanding the animal right we're talking about uh grade one like the little poke hole open fractures we talk mm -hmm. about those fractures that if they weren't open they would successfully be treated in a cast right mm -hmm. so the those fractures do we need to go to the or right so that's the the first point the second point of the the paper that you can see is that we didn't really agree on how to give antibiotics um or for how long and i think that's the same in the adult literature so i think there is a little bit of a personal experience and bias on it do you give iv do you give oral do you give one dose and send it out from the ed do you admit overnight and i think this is a great point for discussion for the the bigger group um what would be uh something that people will be comfortable with but the, the, the point was, okay, not every single fracture needs to be taken to the OR because it's open. If you need to put elastic nails or plates and screws, sure, you're there, you might as well wash it out. So I think that that's really what we learned from it um, in, in, in this paper. But again, if it was a thousand, paper, a thousand patients, maybe the numbers would be a little bit different. But like I said, one patient had an infection. Many more had complications from the surgery, by the way. Um, right, right, yeah, and that, that's the other thing. Like, it's it's hard to know with these, like, you know, what the, you know, what do you think is an appropriate number needed to treat on these? You know, because I think the fact that you have, like, 200 patients and it, it's, like, infections almost, like, not even a thing, you know, for these type 1s. Um, I think one thing that is, is like, definitely, um, that we definitely struggle with a little bit is, is, um, like, you know, who's seeing these patients, right? Like, so a lot of times, you know, if we say they need to go to the operating room, um, they get seen almost like at a higher, higher level of, you know, kind of acuity almost like, you know, if they're, if they're like in, uh, in, you know, a tertiary referral center and you say, oh, they're open, they need to go to the OR, then they come to you and they get evaluated. So, cause like you, you might, what they might think is a type one, like you might think is a type two or a really contaminated type three, you know, uh, with a lot of soft tissue stripping. So it's just, I don't know, it's one of those things, it's a little bit, you know, if you have good people that are looking at these, I think in a controlled environment, type ones based on this data can be probably 
you know, at least considered for, for um, you know, emergency room primarily care. I agree. Um, I agree. It's, it's uh, you know, I've had residents call and say, you know, I have a femur fracture. There's a little poke hole is a type one in a femur fracture, right? Uh, so we know that, that what's inside, what's inside and not what's on outside. So I think that to create some, some um, level of comfort in treating those conservative, my advice would be uh, start with the, the poke holes, the ones that you squeeze in the skin because you don't know if it's open or not. Um, focus on upper extremity because the tendency is that uh, they're probably cleaner or lower energy. Um, and I personally think that uh, admitting for IV antibiotics 24 hours, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a, a good plan. Uh, yeah. Again, we didn't necessarily agree on that, but um, I still like 24 hours of IV antibiotics after opening or taking to the OR one of those, those, uh, those uh, patients. So you create your routine, you know who you're working with, if you're an academic institution or, or not. And then I think you, you're, over time, you see, okay, uh, those can easily be treated conservative. I mean, it's somewhat conservative. You're staying in the hospital, I guess, but, uh, but without surgery and the cost of surgery and the risks associated with the surgical procedure itself. Right. And that would be like a kind of a compromised position. Like you get IV antibiotics, but, and you get a wash out. It just wouldn't be like, you know, formal OR debridement. Yeah. And so I always ask people, I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you mean by grade one open debridement? Uh, do you expose both ends of the bone and, and retract the right. periosteum? I mean, that's an opening debridement. Or do you just uh, blast it and, and, you know, pray a little bit over the, the limb in the OR? I mean, that you can do in the, in the ED just, just as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, I would like to thank Dr. Arcata for his time um, and uh, for participating in this journal club. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ryan Keeler from Children's Hospital Medical Center in Omaha. And today uh, I'm talking with a good friend, John Scheneker uh, from Monroe Carroll Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a 2001 pediatric trauma article that he co-authored titled Internal Rotation Stress Test Reduces Cross-Pinning and Improves Outcomes in Displaced Pediatric Supracondylar Humerus Fractures. And this is coming out of uh, JBJS Open Access Journal. Um, first of all, John, good to see you. Always great to see you, Ryan. Um, so... As you know, I was a resident at Vanderbilt while this paper was going on, so I'm pretty familiar with the internal rotation stress exam, um, as I think this was just getting started and you guys were incorporating this into practice, but um, I've always wondered, what was your motivation for studying this, or how did you guys come across this idea? Perfect. So it, there was an article that came out of, um, I know some of the authors from Australia, I'd have to go back and see which one it was that we discussed at a journal club. And what it came down to in terms of the internal rotational stress test, it is asked the question is, when is your fixation of a supracondylar humerus fracture in the operating room sufficient biomechanically? And one of the big points that the paper had made is that most of the data on supracondylar humerus fractures and biomechanical fixation are off of saw bones or cadaver bones that don't have periosteum. And they were the first that really breached, I think, that important idea that were our principles of what we do in pediatric orthopedic trauma is to identify where the periosteum's torn, figure out what could be hurt because the periosteum's torn, use the periosteum that's intact to reduce it. And then ultimately our fixation is to replace the torn periosteum. And that was one of the big things that we all thought in our group was missing from many of the biomechanical studies in supracondylars. So with that, it was around 2011, 2012 that we started talking about it more in our pre and post-operative conferences. And we all decided to start testing with the not just the internal rotational stress test, but all stress tests. But we really focused on that in terms of um, stability of the medial column with internal rotational stress. And from there is where we moved into doing this. And that was really the impetus is that it's hard to tell off of a sawbones 
if a pin construct is good or not because of that. How, how I guess, has this changed your understanding of reductions um, for the fractures too? Because I imagine, you know, you're talking about the periosteum and how it's intact and you're replacing it, but has this idea in doing this project, has it changed your understanding of how to reduce these fractures? Very much so. Um, you know, when we started off doing this and so many people get going, it's frustrating with supercondylars because you really think biplanar you know, when you first look at these and you think, oh, all I have to do is flex this up. <laughs> I see you laughing. <laughs> you, yeah. you know that all too well. It's a, yeah. when you get out in your practice, I'm sure you've had, you get that humbling experience almost immediately of a type three just kicking your butt. I and, think I have uh, called you or texted you about <laughs> a few of those occurrences, but yes, oh, totally agree. It, it's amazing. And from the biplanar aspect of it, we talk about extension type and we talk about flexion type. And so simply put, extension type anterior periosteum is torn. And so flexing it using the posterior periosteum should lock it in. Flexion type, usually your posterior periosteum is torn and anterior periosteum is intact. And so you can extend it and it'll lock it in. But really the, mod the Wilkins modification of the Gartland um, uh, classification system was that these are rotational injuries, the type threes, and they're not biplanar. Uh, you have to think of them in a, you know, triplane type situation. And that usually what happens is on a 3A or a, what we all like to say is a posterior medial, is that the periosteum tears anteriorly and around the lateral side and that the medial periosteum and posterior periosteum are intact. Whereas a 3B or the dreaded posterior lateral, uh, anterior periosteum is torn and the medial periosteum is torn and that's why the fracture goes posterior lateral. Well, thinking of that as you're reducing it, you have to think about using the periosteum that's intact to reduce it. And that can be you know, a rotational reduction. Um, a lot of times we'll use more of you know, pull it out to length and use the periosteum that's intact, either medial or laterally, to push it over and lock it in, then flex it up. But in terms of reduction, I think that as we started all playing around with this, what we realized is how unbelievably unstable a posterior lateral or 3B is in internal rotation. Mm -hmm. And that really is, I think, the crux of all of this is, is that that's the hardest fracture to stabilize. And I'm sure you've probably experienced that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, when you guys do this, can you just kind of maybe take folks through what your kind of quick setup is for, for doing this and how kind of how you're using this technique on, on say a 3B? Perfect, so the 3B is by far the best one to go to and as 3B is a posterior lateral. And again, you can assess that by seeing, usually there's a bruise over on the anterior medial aspect those are the ones that have a vascular problem or a median nerve injury. And um, typically what we end up doing with those is getting set up so that we can pull them out to length. You wanna use that lateral periosteum. So as you flex up to about 30 degrees, this is to pinch it over, meaning going and pitching the lateral side over to reduce it, holding it in that position, using that posterior periosteum, lateral periosteum and flexing it up. We then, the majority of us now, will put one pin up the lateral column. And that what that does is gives you a good road, uh, locking in of that lateral uh, periosteum lateral column. And then what we do is, is try to use a lateral pin to get across to stabilize the medial column. And so it'll be a more of a valgus pin, if you will, that goes across the olecranon fossa to stabilize the medial column where that periosteum is torn. Once we've done that, we test the sufficiency of that by first going into extension on a lateral and making sure that that's holding the uh, extension type of it. But then you internally rotate stress it. Um, and when you do that, that medial column, if it's not stabilized, will just pop right off. And the reason why that's important is that the best way to get cubitus varus um, is to have that come across and it collapse. And that's what gives you your cubitus varus. So if that is unstable with internal rotation, 
then we would either add a third pin, replace that second pin that goes across, or for many of us, that's an indication to go on to medial pinning. Gotcha. Um, so we've talked a lot about supercondylars, but we haven't kind of talked a lot about the paper, I guess, itself. I mean, a lot of these concepts are um, kind of throughout the paper as you go through it and read it. What, what in your mind are the key findings that you guys had from this study? We were in a unique position, as you know, Ryan, is, is that we medial pin a lot. And because before I, when, when I did my residency here, um, looking back at it, almost every type two got cross pinned. Is, uh, you know, Greg Mencio and Neil Green um, just cross pinned everything. And um, as there was data coming out about the potential of ulnar nerve injury from cross pinning, they backed off a little bit, but it was still pretty much their standard of practice. What's nice about that is, is because we were all cross pinning so much, we actually used the internal rotational stress to determine if we needed to cross pin. And it was a unique setup. There would be very few centers that would be able to ask that question because we went into it with most of us cross pinning type threes. And so instead what we did, what we started doing is, is all of us would do lateral pins and only do a cross pinning if we found that it failed on an internal rotational stress. And what we found in the papers is we dropped from about 50% of cross pinning down to, I think it was like 20 or 30%. It was incredible. Then the other thing that we found was is that by testing this um, intraoperatively with that internal rotational stress, our loss of fixation went to zero. Is that, you know, we knew that we were biomechanically sufficient with what we had. And that's probably one of the biggest things I found is, is that I think you have to ask yourself before you leave the OR, is this biomechanically sufficient to hold this fracture? So the two takeaways is because we went into this cross pinning everything in the first place, we actually think that of the type threes is you probably have about a third of them that with internal rotational stress probably do need a cross pin if that's what your outcome is you're looking for. And that um, by doing internal rotational stress and other stress maneuvers is I think you can really avoid that loss of fixation afterwards. Hi, I am uh, Grant Hogue, orthopedic surgeon at the Boston Children's Hospital, and uh, we are here to discuss the paper Acute Compartment Syndrome in Children and Teenagers with Tibial Shaft Fractures, Incidence and Multivariable Risk Fractures. This was published in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma in 2013, and here to discuss the paper with us is Dr. Benjamin Shore. Thanks, Grant. Um, it's great to be here. Um, my name is Ben Shore. I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Boston Children's Hospital. I uh, specialize primarily in uh, neuromuscular lower extremity orthopedics and pediatric trauma, and uh, it's great to be here. So, Dr. Shore, maybe we could start by you just describing the impetus for this project, why you decided that it was worth, you know, what, what seems to be a fairly large undertaking. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And it's funny. Um, I think this is probably apropos to many of the residents and fellows that kind of listen uh, to these interviews. You know, I, I didn't, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, uh, even when I was in my fellowship from a research perspective, but I uh, was doing two fellowships. So I did a fellowship in Australia. And then I came to Boston and did a second fellowship. And I, um, in the first month when I was in Boston, I had a a patient who was a teenage boy who suffered a tibial shaft fracture that went on to develop compartment syndrome. And similarly, when I was in Australia and Melbourne, I had a similar scenario where I had a patient who was a similar age, almost identical clinical presentation, um, had a tibial shaft fracture, developed compartment syndrome. And, you know, for me, I had done five years of training and really hadn't seen very much of this. And then going to two very different fellowships and had seen it um, in a relatively short time period at both institutions. And so it made me wonder, you know, like, is this a real common thing or was this just a rarely, a really rare occurrence? And, and so that was kind of 
that stimulated uh, the, the thought process behind doing the paper. So, you know, I think for students and trainees, you know, you see these interesting cases during your uh, training and, and you should put them in your back pocket and think about why they happened and, and ask questions about them. Excellent. And so when I read this paper, I think one of the, the real strengths, other than the fact that you've got really solid numbers, but one of the strengths of this paper is the methodology. Um, so you used your univariate analysis to really determine the build out of your multivariable predictors. And one of the first papers that I saw do that was when Dr. Coker did that for the Coker criteria. And you've done something uh, actually a little bit similar here. So can you talk a little bit more about how you built out your multivariable predictors in the process of determining those factors? Yeah, so I think that in general, this isn't necessarily particularly interesting for most of the general readers, but from a stats perspective, um, you know, when you do univariate and multivariate analysis, uh, you're limited by the number of events you're looking at. So fortunately, in our sample size, we had 216 tubular shaft fractures and 25 compartment cases, compartment syndrome cases. And so some people will say that for each variable you want to study in a univariate analysis, um, at least for a broad univariate analysis, you need to have at least four events per per one variable. So if you have 25 uh, events, you can probably look at about eight variables relatively without, you know, you're kind of close, you're just over the limit. And so that's kind of where we drew our eight variable limit. And then you do a univariable analysis and you look at the most the strongly predictive variables within that, that helps drive your multivariable analysis. And for the multivariable analysis, we just wanted to be a little bit stronger. And so we used only four variables, which is four times eight, which is around the similar number of 32, kind of right around our cutoff. So that's kind of how we did it. And we just kind of looked initially for the univariable analysis at the most clinical um, relevant features. And, and what was interesting in the multivariable analysis is that age and mechanism of injury, and in particular motor vehicle accident, were really significant predictors. So if you're over 14 years of age, you know, your risk of compartment syndrome was 23% compared to 3% in the opposite element of the cohort. And similarly, if you're involved in a motor vehicle accident, your risk of compartment syndrome was 23% compared to 8%. So those were pretty strongly significant. Um, uh, and, and that's kind of, I think the kind of the meat and potatoes are the takeaway messages from this paper. Yeah, and so you've started to allude to your results a little bit here, certainly some of the more striking results. And so for you, based on that, how did you change your practice at the time? And potentially, how should the rest of us change our practice once we've read this paper? So I think it's a good question, and, and by no means am I an expert, but one of the things when we structured this paper that I think is really helpful is trying to really characterize mechanism of injury, because I think it can be quite broad and um, not very helpful. So we really clumped all of the high speed motor vehicle type collisions into one classification called motor vehicle accident. So that was uh, on a motorbike, uh, in a car, pedestrian hit by a car, ATV, any kind of powered uh, vehicle fit into the motor vehicle collision group. And then we had a sports related uh, group because a lot of kids at this age play sports and suffer tibial shaft fractures from that. And then we had a fall greater than six feet and an other. And when we characterized them according to that mechanism of injury, it was really quite striking. And, you know, I'm just like looking at some of the numbers when I'm talking to you guys. But if you look at table two here, really, if you're, um, if you're over basically 14 years of age and you are in a, and you suffer a motor vehicle collision your probability of develop, um, developing a compartment syndrome after a tibial shaft fracture oscillates between 20 and 83 percent which is like really significant comparatively in the other age group it's from 0.5 to 3 percent uh, in the same cohort time and so you know for me what helps me is it really just helps me identify who are those high-risk patients so kids that are over 14 in a high energy trauma my spidey senses are tingling and i think it's probably related to some of the studies that have been demonstrated by court brown which um, showed really that young males have inelastic fascia their ability to tolerate swelling uh, is much less 
and, and the risk of compartment syndrome is greater. And so I think those are like the real takeaway messages is who to be aware of, who to be scared about. Um, and then hidden somewhere in, in kind of in the fine print here is that the fact that in pediatric compartment syndrome, 10% of kids will not present with pain out of proportion. And they are presenting with normal straight up compartment syndrome, but they'll present in different ways. And so it just makes you uh, be extra cautious and aware of these clinical scenarios and to really have your uh, spidey senses tingling if you think that uh, something looks not right. No, I think that's fantastic. And so one last question. Within your group, you had a number of patients who didn't require surgery, who were just a close reduction and a cast, but then still went on to develop compartment syndrome. And so for me, when you talk about your spidey senses or people who you're worried about, there are a lot of patients in that 14 and up group, even potentially high velocity patients who could be treated in a cast because that's the first line. And sometimes those patients will make their way out of the ER so how long are you holding these patients for observation in that group? Or are you doing 12 hours, 24 hours? That was a, uh, that's a great question. And what was interesting is that um, uh, many of the kids that uh, were treated initially with a closed reduction uh, were kept overnight. And then because of their clinical scenario in the morning, were taken to the operating room. So there was only one case of compartment syndrome that was a closed reduction. Um, or a surgical intervention that went to the floor and then came back to the operating room for compartment syndrome. The majority of the cases were admitted overnight. So to answer your question, usually if you do a reduction during the day, you tuck them in overnight, you watch them carefully, and by the morning they're either good or they're not good. And if they're not good, waiting longer is probably not really the right move. It's just moving on it and doing some other sort of definitive treatment. Excellent. So that's all I've got. We appreciate your answers, and this is an excellent paper. Thanks, Grant. Uh, it's uh, it's great to uh, participate. I want to thank uh, Keith and the rest of the AO for uh, the opportunity, um, and uh, happy to answer any other questions at this time. The for the first paper was management of pediatric type one open fractures in the emergency department or operating room multi center perspective. Um, our author here today is uh, Alexander Arcader. Uh, and some of the take-home messages were um, infection rate in type 1 pediatric open fractures is very low. Uh, this multi-center study suggested that type 1 open fractures in children can be considered for ED treatment. Uh, the number needed to treat is likely very high for, uh, to prevent one infection in terms of OR debridement for these fractures. Uh, so, and maybe this is for everybody on the panel in regards to the first paper. Who is taking most of their type one upper extremity open fractures to the operating room still? Okay, we, so we got we got most hands up that most of us are still taking these to the operating room. And yeah. maybe uh, Alex, since you're the one who wrote this great paper, and maybe we should be following it more what would your indication be to truly take a type one to the operating room versus one to leave in the ER? Is it, is it one where you almost can't tell that it's open? I mean, like you were talking about pinholes, like where you're squeezing it to see if the blood's really coming out. Is that the one that I shouldn't take to the OR? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that the first criteria is that you don't need to do surgery for the fracture itself. Right. I mean, because if you need to fix the fracture, then discussion is it's over. Uh, but I do think we're way too aggressive in taking those. They're like a tiny little poke hole, especially upper extremities, especially kids. They're younger, 12 and younger. And that's what the other papers have shown, too. Um, I had one yesterday uh, and uh, and it was a tiny little poke hole, 11 year old girl forearm. But the forearm was unstable. So I had to I had to rod the farm. So obviously, then I I uh, I opened and then did a formal washout. But I think if you start antibiotics pretty quickly, is this is a fracture that happened in an urban area, a little tiny poke hole, upper extremity, young kids. Um, I don't see a need to to really go to the OR and and, and do a, a big open surgery. Yeah, I think I think the uh, the. 
you know, you know, I, I'm going to try to not say this because I hate for Alex to hear that I agree with him. Um, but, uh, but um, I think, you know, in this case, I agree with him. I think there's a couple of caveats, particularly in the Philadelphia area, uh, which is like, number one, you know, they, they oftentimes, and I'm sure, you know, this happens at a lot, you know, in Vanderbilt and Boston Children's is like, when, when they get to you, you're like the second or third person they've been to. And usually what will end up happening is every person they go to will tell them that this is an open fracture it needs surgery it needs to go right now. And, and then, you know, you get, they get to you and you're like, yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> I'll do it the next day. Or like, I won't do it at all. And like, I mean, it's just kind of, it's, it's a, it's a difficult sell. And that doesn't mean that we we shouldn't necessarily do it. Uh, but it also means that we have to be sure that nothing bad is going to happen. Um, and like Alex said, in uh, you know, in, in the interview there that, you know, there's always somebody who stands up at the podium and says, you know, I had one of these that went really bad, whatever the case was. And um, I think that's kind of why it's still like dogma to do it. It's really hard to break dogma. Um, and, but I think that, that, you know, papers like this and hopefully the pro prospective paper that uh, Alex was talking about uh, will help us start to do that. And then the other thing is, you know, um, if you look at the original sort of uh, Gustillo and Anderson um, paper, uh, and like how they classified it, uh, it really was more of a, you know, a soft tissue stripping off the bone, uh, bony comminution type paper. Um, and like everybody goes by the size of the wound, but it's really like the, the damage to the soft tissue that, it, that, it, that is what we're calling a type one versus a type two. Um, and I think, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's difficult for someone with, with um, not as much experience to be able to tell uh, what is a type one versus a type two? I mean, it sounds like a very simple thing, but it, it can, it can end up being more complex. So I got, I got a bunch of hands up. So you want to go, uh, who, I don't, I don't know who had it up first. Maybe ben I went first. first. I'm going first, John, you oh, can perfect. just wait. Yeah, your jump, turn. Jump. <laughs> um, right, you know, but I think Keith and Alex, you know, the point that both of you guys brought up is the crux of this, right? Is it, Generally, if you take a kid to the OR and wash out their fracture, they won't lose their arm, right? They won't. They can have a bad complication, but they won't lose their arm. I disagree and, with that statement. I mean, you can have complications in the OR, you can lose your arm. I mean, I don't the, think you can lose your arm that. from washing out a grade one open fracture and fixing it. I just don't think that's possible. Even if you, you have can an get an infection, injury. you can get an infection in your heart rate, you can get compartment syndrome, you can get, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, that's yeah. a little extreme. Uh, a little on the extreme uh, to say that though. Yeah, well, I think if you look at the papers that talk about complications of surgical fixation of open forearm fractures, there's not very many that talk about loss of limb. Well, in the I've surgical at the fixation, is it really even a point? Because if you're operating on it and you decided it needs fixation, then you would wash it out anyway. Right, so I guess my point that I was just trying to make is that the challenge here is that one loss of a limb is just such a great burden. And so it's really hard because we don't have the volume ever to get the number needed to treat unless we're in a war, right? Like we just don't have that volume of open fractures to test it. I agree with you and I agree with Keith that he's saying that the dogma is hard to change, um, you know, but frankly, I, I'd, I think it is hard. I think in a small poke hole like you're talking about where it's rarely bleeding, it's probably a grade one. But I think there's a lot of gray between grade one and grade two. And especially, I think using that additional distinction of upper versus lower extremity is helpful just because of the mechanism of injury, for sure. I don't think there's a grade one femur fracture, right? I think we'd all would agree with that. So just one question. So let me ask you this uh, to all of you guys. Uh, let's suppose you have a fracture, you go to the OR, it's a type one, little poke hole. Uh, the fracture is stable in a cast. You don't need any fixation. Are you making a big open incision? Are you getting both ends of the bone exposing, making sure there's nothing in there, uh, and then putting a cast on? Or what What are you guys doing? I mean, I fix them all. <laughs> I talk first. So I'll be quiet and let somebody else answer. If I'm there, I fix them all. I would agree with what Keith just said. If you're in the OR, I fix it as well. And if you've washed it out and you have personally disrupted the periosteum or if the patient disrupted the periosteum, then I would fix it. Yeah. All right, John, you had your hands up too. 
Yeah, I think that a big part of this discussion has to be about the variable in terms of which variable is more important, and that is, is the surgery or the antibiotics also. And I think for the prospective study for this, it's very difficult. For example, here in the great state of Tennessee, for some reason, those open fractures tend to come in at about 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, if our resident reduces them and talks to us about it, you know, then, then if I send them home, those parents are probably not going to pick up those antibiotics at the pharmacy the next day if I wanted to give them 24 hours of antibiotics or more. Whereas if I keep them here overnight and I treat them the next day, they get their IV antibiotics. And I do think that that variability is a really big part that makes this a very difficult thing to tease out because I do think those antibiotics are an important aspect of this as we figured out a long time ago. And so with that, Alex, uh, if you get one of these and you send them home, are you sending them home on antibiotics? Yeah, I don't, I don't send them home. Um, and that was the, the, what we didn't agree among different centers. I, I admit everyone for 24 hours of IV antibiotics. For the exact reason of, we were just talking about. Yeah, even, yeah. But, but not necessarily going to the OR. Okay. So yeah. that's, I think that's probably in terms of the prospective aspect of this, the only way we're going to tease this out is if everybody does what you do. And that is, is that you keep them around so that you can control the main variable. I mean, and, and that's the part that I'd say is, is that I think that you're, you're almost, if you do it your way, Alex, I don't even know if you're asking the question if surgery is an issue more or less, is, is it that the antibiotics take care of it? I agree. I'm going to put my hand down now. That's perfect. Um, you want to go to the next slide? I, I don't have any questions from the audience. I don't think I have like Q and A here. Nobody's asked a question. We we we're all we're all very thorough. That's the issue. <laughs> um, all right. So this is for the actually this is for I have this down as Article Two. So it's not it's not necessarily Article Two, but I guess the the thing is is like you know we we're all PD pods and you can wind us up for you know and. We could talk about super collars for like three days. So it's probably good that we do the compartment syndrome next. Um, so this one's uh, acute compartment syndrome in children and te teenagers with tibial shaft fractures, incidence, and multivariable risk factors. Um, so I just added on a couple of these, these ones just for people to generally consider, um, which is uh, in pediatric orthopedics, uh, you always want to consider three A's rather than um, five P's. The three A's being an anxiety, agitation, and increase, and most importantly, increasing analgesic requirement, uh, because those are the ones that um, are more linked to pediatric uh, acute compartment syndrome. And then this particular study showed that uh, patients 14 years and older um, with an MVA as their mechanism were at highest risk, um, and that uh, vigilance and a high degree of suspicion are necessary, um, and early recognition is paramount. Um, uh, oh, okay. So now I have a couple, <laughs> a couple questions about the previous study. So we'll, 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 uh, we'll rock those out real quick and then, um, and then we'll, we'll talk about this study. But, um, so the first person says that the study needs to be done comparing just doing antibiotics versus going to the OR plus antibiotics to see if there's a difference. And I think that's what we were, uh, we were discussing previously, like in terms of like Alex's, um, approach versus like, you know, just a straight up ER plus uh, PO antibiotics approach versus like OR uh, and the whole shebang. Um, and then the, the next question is, is oral antibiotics, if they can get them within eight hours of their ER IV dose sufficient? Um, is your setup, is your center set up so that closed reduction and sedation has to go to the OR anyway, or is this, is that change your plan to always fix in the OR? So, um, at CHOP, at CHOP uh, you know, we have the ability to do sedation um, in the emergency department. Um, our residents are able to reduce fractures in the emergency department. Um, how about Vandy? Do they, is that the same thing? Plenty of experience doing that in New York. Boston Children's? Uh, how about uh, Omaha? Yeah, for the most part in the ER, but we do some in like procedure rooms too. Okay, so so basically, that's you know th th that does not factor into our uh, decision. But certainly, if you were at a um, you know a smaller center, that might that might tip the scales a little bit since the kids are already getting a sedated sedation, um, you know, versus an anesthetic. Um, I would like to ask, like Be uh, Ben, in terms of this compartment syndrome thing, like um, 
did you did you guys find i mean maybe it's just that you know i can't read or whatever but did, did you guys find that transverse fractures were specifically prob problematic or uh or, or any particular um you know like fracture morphology um that 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 you guys found were problematic yeah um thanks keith for the question we, we used the ao classification we didn't really find anything that drove um that drove that part of the model so um, age and mechanism were really the number one drivers here. And I think, you know, um, you know, I talk, when I talk to some of my colleagues in some other centers, they make fun of this paper sometimes because they think our numbers are really way too high. And I think the numbers may be higher than at other places, but, you know, if you look at uh, one of the kind of landmark papers that I use was a study out of shock trauma that looked at their seven attendings and looked at their rate of compartment syndrome across seven attendings treating adult tibia fractures and it oscillated between three and 23%. So the reality is there's gonna be some surgeon factors involved in making the decision for compartment syndrome. But in this study, we didn't really think and find that the actual fracture morphology had a role per se in, in driving this, but it was more so age and mechanism more than anything else. Um, that's an that, that's an interesting point, actually. Um, so, like, uh, because you know, a lot of times, you know, mo most of these uh, these journal clubs, and in fact, most of you know the material in AO is 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 mostly adult material. Um, but you know, I find I find you know pediatric acute compartment syndrome is like a, it's own, its own thing completely. Um, and um, you know, the reason why I asked is that is because I I found that most of my compartment syndromes have been transverse fractures, and like I even have one this weekend. Um, and it was, an, it was an MBA, but it wasn't over 14, <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, it was a transverse fracture and I, I saw it and it was a little bit, I, I brought the fascia tome to the OR and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do it prophylactically. And I, I finished the nailing and I was like, yeah, it's fine. I'm just going to leave it. Sure enough, she developed compartment syndrome like a few hours later. Um, but my, my, my question is, is like, how do you got, like, how does everybody on the call, like, like make the call for compartment syndrome? Do you, do you guys use, um, uh, you know, like a striker needle, or do you just say, all right, that, you know, or is it like kind of like a, the, and I know it when I see it kind of situation, um, or how do you, how do you do it? Or do you go strictly by three A's? So uh, I, in, I go by clinical and then also uh, what I see in the operating room. I usually take a striker needle and just hook it up to an arterial line so that I have it on the field and uh, we'll just, test the compartments as I go during the procedure and at the end and make the decision um, according to what I see with the direct measurements of those compartments and with the clinical exam I had before. And so this is like when you're actually doing the case though, not like, so, so like if the kids on the, suppose you already did the case and the kids on the floor. Yeah, clinical exam for sure. And the three A's on that. I mean, I think that that it's one of those things, like you said, I think when you see it, you, you know it and you never, you you know, take out a couple cold appendices um, is okay. Yeah, I think it's hard. You know, like I agree with everything that John said. And Keith, there's a question about explaining what a fasciotome is. But um, I all I would say is that it's not always as straightforward, the clinical diagnosis. And I think, um, I think you can have, the, you know, I think it's just, it's not always so easy. So I think you have to look at everything together. So you look at kind of the non- uh, the non-standard uh, kind of indicator. So, you know, I think Dr. Hogan and I shared a patient who wasn't necessarily complaining of a lot of pain, was, but was like super hypertensive and super tachycardic. And when you said to him, are you having pain? He wouldn't really say it's like the worst pain ever. He had some discomfort with stretch, but like his heart rate and his blood pressure were so high that the nurses were calling like a you know, they were calling us not because of anything of his narcotic use, but just because how hypertensive he was. So I think you have to just um, use all of the kind of clues that you have around you because kids may not understand what you're talking about and they may not be able to articulate the pain the way it's written in a textbook, I guess. That's my only caution. Yeah, and, and I, would also, I would also say that like, you know, it can pop up when you don't expect it. You know, like it's, it, I, I, I can still remember I had this like seven-year-old um, with like a proximal tibia fracture that was like non-displaced. And, it, you know, it, she was like off a wall of pain. 
and it was just like and, you know our compartments didn't even feel that tight and we were we were just like this this can't be compartment syndrome this can't be compartment syndrome and she was just you know had the three a's you know just like textbook three a's uh so i was like all right we well, yeah, i guess she's going to the operating room <laughs> took so her to the operating room you know, there's a good study that looks at how good we are at measuring how tight something is. Yeah, by our hands, terrible. Right. And it looked at like residents, fellows and attendings. And there's no correlation with how tight something is and whether they have compartment syndrome, although everybody uses that. Right. The residents like, ah, yeah. oh, they're like swollen, but not that compressible. It's like a completely useless data point. Yeah. Yeah. And the point is, you know, I, I, um, you know, I did her fat, I did fasciotomies on her. She felt better in PACU. It was like, you know, so it's, it's one of these like really, so I think it's just one of these things where you got to always with kids, they're not going to give you like, they're not going to give it to you straight, basically, you know, um, you just have to have a very, very high index of suspicion. And, and as John was saying, you, you know, you're going to take out a few cold appendix. It's fine. You know, just, you never yeah. want to miss one. What clues do people you when they're rounding use when they're rounding to kind of help guide them if a kid is comfortable or not comfortable, especially younger kids? Bump into the bed test. Yeah, I usually kick the bed. <laughs> yeah, most kids should be playing a video game or watching a movie when you walk in, right? So that if they're not engaging in video games or movie when you walk in and they can't get comfortable in the bed, they've got compartment syndrome. Yeah. Definitely. John, you had your hand up before. Were you going to pepper me with a question? <laughs> I forgot to take it down. Uh, uh, it, it looks like there's it, a good it, question in the chat. Yeah, so I was actually going to talk about that part of it in terms oh, of yeah. uh, managing the wounds. Um, I really like uh, using that continuous measurement and, you know, really trying to go off of basically a delta P um, in terms of the pressure and how the muscle looks as well. Um, and once everything is released and you're, you've confirmed it's released by taking measurements of all compartments, in terms of managing it, what I usually do is do uh, close as much as I can with the pressure monitor in, making absolutely certain that I don't go back into a compartment and then uh, put a wound back on. And I usually come back about two days later and then uh, take everything down, wash it out, measure the compartments, and then just work my way until I get it closed. And after about the third time, if I think that I'm not gonna get it all the way, then I'll skin grab. Yeah, so we wrote a paper on this uh, that got published a couple of years ago, just looking at our practice with management of fasciotomy wounds. And, and what we found is like, you know, the, the adults, the adult trauma guys across the street from us wrote that if you have a compartment syndrome after a tibial shaft fracture, after your first washout, if you can't close the skin, you should graft them. That's like the adult paper that's from the Brigham, which is on the other side of the bridge. So I just didn't think that was the case in kids. So we looked at our data and what we found was that regardless of the number of washouts you had, your success of closure never decreased. So like, um, so the point is, is that you can be successful with closing a kid after a fasciotomy five or six times, uh, going back and doing like exactly what John talked about. And the success rate is about 50% with each washout and it doesn't go down and the risk of complications doesn't increase. And so I think that the message there is that you can continue to give at it and try. And in most situations, you will be successful if you are patient. I think people lose patience or there are other factors that drive the decision to a graft. Uh, but I think that in most children, true children, you can get away with a closure. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I've failed very seldom to close a kid, even after two to three times. Yeah. I mean, because you can use, we usually, we <laughs> answer the question, we usually do two incisions. Um, we usually close a, the medial incision on the first trip back, maybe do a couple stitches on the lateral incision. Uh, and then close the lateral incision with Donati Algauer's the next time. Um, or, you know, if you can't do it, you can bring them back a third time. But usually you're, you'll be able to do it after three. Um, all right. So, uh, so just in the interest of time, we will go to our last paper. Uh, and there's a question regarding that. But um, I will uh, just give a, a quick... Um, a quick summary there. Uh, internal rotation stress test reduces cross-pinning and improves outcomes in displaced pediatric supercondylar humerus fractures uh, by John Scheneker et al. 
Um, and in this study, the, it was shown that the uh, internal rotation stress test can help determine stability of supracondylar humerus fracture post fixation. Use of internal rotation stress tests can reduce the incidence of medial pinning. Uh, and an internal rotation stress testing can be can reduce loss of reduction and reoperation rate. Um, okay, so we'll start with John here. Thank you. Uh, regarding the steps for choosing a medial pin, again in brief during the reduction maneuver at operation. Yeah. So in terms of a medial pin, um, I really think that the main two fractures you're going to need that for are the three B of that posterior lateral or flexion type, both of which typically have periosteal dis disruption on that medial column. And essentially, what we do is is get the lateral column stabilized with the reduction with the pin up it. And then you really want kind of a valgus, or if you're coming from the lateral side, valgus pin to get over to that medial column and once you're there, you test, you, you stress in all positions, extension, external rotation. And then when you go into inter, internal rotation, that's where you really pay attention to see if you get that sail sign, if the medial column just pops right off. Um, and if it does pop off, that's where you decide, do I want to put a third pin in, redo that lateral pin and see if you can grab that column. And if you're comfortable with putting medial pins in, I think that that's the indication for a medial pin is, is that the medial column has instability. And so I think that's just a nice algorithm for thinking through all the supracondylars. Here's just like a technical question. So how, how exactly do you, uh, do you do your internal rotation stress test? Like yeah, I, so I do mine, I, gra I grab the arm and just sort of like put it under floor make sure I get a good lateral and then move the, the forearm, but do you, is that how you do it or how do you do it? No, what we do is, is we have everything out at 90 degrees and we get an external rotation lateral first, and mm -hmm. then we just put that on the other view and then take it over and get an internal rotation. Usually I have to lift up okay. under the elbow or the shoulder um, to see it. And then all you're doing is, is looking to see that you get a matching lateral to the external rotation stress. And you can, Sometimes you go to that internal rotation, you just feel it pop right off. Um, so uh, Ben, how do you guys do your uh, stress? Like, how do you stress your supercondylar construct at, at the end? I don't, I don't do it a whole lot different than that. I just also do something in the coronal plane also. Yeah. Yeah, we do that. Alex, Alex do, you do, do you do it? What, what do you do for uh, stress? Yeah, I've, I've, I've asked John to explain to me the, the test uh, a few times before to try to understand. This is the best explanation you've ever given, uh, John. Um, so good. Um, I, I do life stress um, in, the, in the sagittal plane for the most part. I, I don't do a lot of stress in the coronal plane. Uh, in my experience, I mean, if the if the sagittal plane is pretty stable in those type threes, I don't expect the coronal plane to, to be off. Am, am I wrong, Ben? Could you be just coronal plane kind of uh, going back and forth, but the sagittal plane is perfect? Yeah, no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think uh, you'll, see, you'll see what John is talking about, the medial spike. You'll sometimes see some coronal plane rotation when that spike kicks up, I think, because it's usually yeah. not keyed in all the way, but I'll let him explain it. And the other scenario is, is, is if you have comminution on one of the columns, then I think that you can be, pass on your rotational stress, but still be collapsing into cubitus varus or cubitus valgus if there's comminution on one of the columns, which is rare. So, so generally speaking, um, your, your in indication for a medial pin is um, like purely based on um, stress test. Yes. Yeah, so if I mean for extension type and then flexion type, forget flexion type for a second. Well, flexion type is the same. I mean, I think that you do your all three tests. It's not just the internal rotational stress, I think, is the best for determining if the medial column is stable. And that's why we focused on this. But I think that when you go to the operating room first, anything impedes, you have to have some ability to ask the question, am I sufficient with the fixation that I have? And I think that's the part about supracondylars that's really helpful to have a algorithm of asking that question. You know, there's a, the, the older saying was, is type twos get two pins, type threes get three pins. 
And I think that that's a good thing to start off with, but I think it's better to go to the OR and actually have a biomechanical test that you can say, I know that I have sufficient fixation. Um, I guess what I was trying to ask is like, is there any, are there any extension type super collars that you're gonna medial pin off the bat, like from, from jump? No, extension type, no. No, we, we've switched our practice now completely with that, that we'll go lateral pins first. And if it fails on the medial column, then we'll cross pin. And again, we're a group that used to every one of them would get cross pinned. Because uh, I might be opening up a can of worms here with only five minutes left. But um, like, you know, you know, I, I think for me, like, I, and I always tell our, our fellows is like the, um, you know, if, if it's a high superconylar, so above the, uh, above the fossa, uh, if it's got medial comminution uh, or if it's got a high medial spike and you can't get that lateral pin beyond the 50 yard line in the distal fragment uh, and still get a medial pin, then I, I don't even bother. I just go straight to a medial pin from the. From I, the I don't think that you're uh, opening up a can of, I, I, I would agree with that. The, the metadiaphyseal junction supercondylars, the high ones, I mean, there's, there's good stuff coming out on that, that, you know, a lot of times those three pins and cross pin are the most stable construct. And then if you have comminution on it, you have to judge the comminution as to where to make it so it won't collapse in that coronal plane. And then obviously if you have a more oblique fracture that won't take lateral pins. Do, do any of you guys feel differently about that? You guys, or, um, are you guys using the 50 yard line thing or are you guys, how do you guys judge to see if you're going to be able to get away with, uh, or I should say be successful with, um, um, you know, just three lateral pins in some of these um, variants. And I think, Kif, I think that the principles described here are, are excellent. Uh, you know, John explains really well, the ones that he thinks they're going to be unstable already. I still think, try to put three perfect pins and then test it. And I think if I have three well-placed pins and still unstable, I'm not going for a fourth pin, that's for sure. I'm going medial pin. So as long as I can, I, I, I get both columns. Uh, so whether it's that one four quarters spin through the fossa and then a second pin in the lateral column, if those two still not giving us enough stability, then I think you gotta go medial. Yeah, one, one other thing I just want to add to that, what Alex was just saying is, is that, you know, lateral pinning is the, the iatrogenic nerve rate of injury rate of lateral pins is not negative, is not zero. And, uh, you know, if you look at the meta-analyses, it's about listed at about 1% in the meta-analyses. And I think that where that's taken off is Peter Waters was the one who really highlighted to me about this is, is when people keep putting lateral pins in, eventually you're gonna end up having some median nerve problems. And so I think that that's one of the bigger things is overall reduction of number of pins is an important thing to do. And as Alex just said, instead of just keep throwing more pins in on the lateral side is, is to have a reason for a different construct. Here, um, so we only have like two minutes left, but I, I want to actually, I want to like burn the house down. So I, and I didn't, I failed to do it with the other one. So I'm going to try with this one. <laughs> so how about this? Uh, uh, flexion type supercondylar with ulnar nerve injury. Yeah. One medial pin. Yeah. I, I, I it's the same thing, honestly, as is saying that we have a whole bunch of uh, three A's that we have one lateral pin. If you know where that periosteum is torn and you go to replace it and it's stable, because that flexion type, don't you think most of the periosteum is torn posterior and medial? Well, I mean, especially I, if you have your ulnar nerve. Yeah, right. I, the, the reason why I asked is because every time, um, every time I've opened, like, so when I see an ulnar nerve, you know, palsy with a flexion type, like I open it immediately. Yeah. And I reduce it and pin it, and it seems pretty stable. I put it a lateral pin just because, but I don't think it needs it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that a lot of the three A's don't need more pins either. Same reason. Just don't go do, show that on your board. If anybody's <laughs> yeah. listening to this, do yeah, yeah, not don't. do that. And do not Nobody show that on your board. Walk out of the OR with this one is, pin. Don't do yeah, it. Yeah. 
Yeah, this it's, is all this is all just saying, this this is this <laughs> is all just saying that if you understand it and you know when it's efficient, but don't put that on your boards. Yeah, don't put it on your boards. But I think if you're if you know um, the one thing with pediatric orthopedics that you really have to understand uh, is the periosteum is your friend. Uh, and if you know where it is, uh, that can guide your fixation, um, you know, more than almost anything. So, uh, and you really have to support the areas that don't, that have periosteum torn. And if you do that, then you'll have a stable construct. And I think that's the theory. It's kind of a, um, a little bit of a reducto ad absurdum comment, but, um, you know, cause I, I, you know, it's like, you just can't, it, it's, it's hard to leave the OR with one pin and, and you should definitely not do it going to boards. Um, but you should definitely know where the periosteum is and use it um, to your advantage because your patients will appreciate it. Um, I will, I'd like to thank uh, all, the, all the panelists uh, and all the moderators um, and all the participants uh, for your time. Um, and I'm gonna, have, uh, I'm gonna have you advance a couple more slides here. Uh, our take home messages um, are that type one pediatric open fractures have a low infection rate uh, and time to antibiotics is most important. Uh, number two, three A's as opposed to five B's should be considered when assessing pediatric compartment syndrome. Teens over 14 who are in MVAs are at greater risk. Um, and consider an internal rotation stress test um, to reduce the rate of medial pinning as well as loss of reduction in reoperation. Uh, an upcoming journal club session to be announced for July 19th, 2022. Next. Uh, thank you for, uh, for your participation. And a link to the recording will be sent out through Zoom 24 hours after the conclusion of this session for those who registered. Um, and it's on AO uh, Trauma North America YouTube uh, channel.